now. You may have hoodwinked everyone else in this backwater town, but you can't fool me. I listen to public radio. Broadcasting from the Blue Ridge Mountains here in the star city of Roanoke, Virginia. Welcome, my friends, to the Jamie Lee Show. Hope you're doing well and working inside today. It's one nasty, cold, and snowy day outside our studios. If it were January all the year, I wonder if I'd like it here. Finding every place I go, snow, snow, always snow. Snow upon the lane and streets. Snow wherever children meet. And the house is made of snow. And the school where children go. Do you think I'd grow to be a child quite different from me? Who'd never seen a thing but snow? Would I be on the radio? Well, radio is not radio anymore. At least, that's what my wife tells me. She told me that because I thought about getting back into radio once I retired from American Builders Contractor Supply. She made a good point. I researched it and tried to listen to the local stations and jocks on the air, and it was not the same as when I was on the air. Today's radio disc jockeys have no control of the music they play, and to me, there just aren't enough talented jocks on the air anymore. When I was on the air, a third-class permit was required for announcers. It was also known as a third phone, or a restricted radio telephone operator permit. To obtain this license, you had to pass a written exam on basic radio regulations and technical knowledge. It was a three-part written test. The parts were called elements. If you passed elements one and two, you could operate the dispatcher's radio at a taxi service. But if you were going to be on a broadcast station, you also had to pass element nine, the broadcast endorsement. It was the hardest part. Lots of technical stuff, like how to calculate the station's power, the rules for the emergency broadcast system, what to do if the lights on the antenna tower went out, that kind of stuff. Lots of people passed elements one and two, but flunked nine, which meant that you had to take the whole thing over again. I passed elements one and two in Charleston, West Virginia, and passed element nine in St. Louis, Missouri. I still have my official FCC certificate. In those days, operators were required to post their licenses in the studio where they worked. The third-class permits and the broadcast endorsements were discontinued in 1986. Radio disc jockeys were not merely responsible for the show on the air. They were often legally responsible for operating the station's transmitter. At one time, you needed a third-class radio telephone operator's license from the FCC. It was the operator's job to take transmitter meter readings every three hours to make sure the station was operating within legal limits. If the transmitter dropped off the air for some reason, it was the operator's job to turn it back on. And it was his or her job to turn the transmitter on in the morning and off 
at night. The requirement that a transmitter be operated by a live human being was a big reason why, for many years, a lot of radio stations that could have operated 24 hours a day did not. Why pay a guy to sit there all night when the audience is likely to be tiny? But starting about 20 years ago, transmitter technology began to improve, and today, transmitters can tend themselves. If, for some reason, the signal gets out of its legal parameters, the transmitter can adjust automatically, or at the very least, automatically contact an engineer to adjust it. At many stations, when the last shift of the day is over, the last jock need only make sure the station's autopilot is functioning properly before turning off the lights and walking out to the parking lot, leaving the on-air programming to continue heard in the building only by the cleaning staff and whatever is growing in the station refrigerator. The likelihood of a finding a sizable audience on the overnights may not be any greater today than it was a generation ago, but whatever you can get comes cheap. I suspect I am not the only old radio guy who carries a torch for the process of signing on and signing off. You'd arrive for your shift in the morning, and the building would be quiet. You might hear police scanners in the newsroom or the weather radio, but the monitors in the building would be silent except the teletype. Transmitters used to require warming up, you'd have to turn the filaments on first and let them run for a few minutes before turning the plates on. The plates were what created the carrier wave on which the programming would be heard. When you turn the plates on, you'd hear a bump on the studio monitors with the beginning of the wave. Federal regulations require the operator to log the precise minutes at which the carrier came up. How long the carrier would be up before programming went on was left to the operator's discretion. Maybe a few seconds, maybe a couple of minutes, maybe longer. Some stations would simply begin with a station ID announcement, but back in the day, a longer announcement was routine, with call letters, city of license, sometimes the street address of the studios and or transmitter, the station's frequency, and the station's power measured in watts. At sign-off, the procedure was reversed. Every station I ever worked for had a sign-off announcement similar to the one used at sign-on, although it was common for TV stations to play the Star Spangled Banner at sign-off. It was less common in radio, although some stations did. Once the audio was finished, you turn off the plates to kill the carrier wave, taking care to log the precise time. Then you could turn the filaments off. From the first day you ever set foot in a radio studio, you're indoctrinated with the idea that silence, dead air, is a bad, bad thing. For that reason, those moments after sign-off always seemed out of kilter to me, no matter how often I experienced them. I always tried to get out of the building as quickly as I could, and not just because it was late at night and I wanted to go home. The unnatural silence always seemed spooky to me. Today, the jock with the first shift of the day usually steps into a programming stream that's already running, which is not the same experience as operating the floodgates yourself. 
That bump in the morning was like announcing your presence to the world. I'm a disc jockey, hear me roar. In 1988, after 10 years of being on the air, I left radio. Unbeknownst to me, radio was about to change. The FCC and the Fairness Doctrine was a policy that required licensed radio and television broadcasters to present fair and balanced coverage of controversial issues of interest to their communities, including by granting equal airtime to opposing candidates for public office. However, the policy was criticized by some as an infringement of the freedom of speech guaranteed by the First Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. In 1987, the Federal Communications Commission abolished the Fairness Doctrine, arguing that it was no longer necessary or appropriate in the area of diverse and competitive media. Some people have advocated for the reintroduction of the Fairness Doctrine, while others have opposed it as a threat to the independence and diversity of the media. The repeal of the Fairness Doctrine enabled the rise of talk radio that has been described as unfiltered, divisive, and or vicious. In 1988, a savvy former ABC radio executive named Ed McLaughlin signed Rush Limbaugh, then working at a little-known Sacramento station to a nationwide syndication contract. McLaughlin offered Limbaugh to stations at an unbeatable price free. All they had to do to carry his program was to set aside four minutes per hour for ads that McLaughlin's company sold to national sponsors. The stations got to sell the remaining commercial time to local advertisers. According to the Washington Post, from his earliest days on the air, Linbaugh loved to talk about conspiracy theories, divisiveness, even viciousness. Prior to 1987, people using much less controversial verbiage had been taken off the air as obvious violations of the Fairness Doctrine. The most significant change occurred in 1996 when the Telecommunications Act eliminated the national ownership cap and increased the local ownership limits. This allowed some owners to own several radio stations across the country and in the same market. The legislation, touted as a step that would foster competition, resulted in the subsequent mergers of several large companies. Over 4,000 radio stations were bought out, and minority ownership of TV stations dropped to its lowest point since the federal government began tracking such data in 1990. This 1996 Telecommunications Act was a major reform of the U.S. communications law that aimed to promote competition and reduce regulation in the industry. It didn't happen. It had unintended consequences, such as allowing media consolidation, reducing diversity of voices, and weakening labor protections for radio workers. Many radio people, including my wife, who was on the air for 25 years in the radio industry, especially those working in small and independent stations, lost their jobs or faced reduced wages and benefits due to the increased pressure from the corporate giants. Some critics, like me, 
argue that the 1996 Telecommunications Act harmed the public interest and the quality of radio broadcasting in the United States. Today, there are over 15,406 radio stations in the United States. The limitations on the number of radio stations a single entity may own in an area are based on a sliding scale that varies by the size of the market. For instance, in a radio market with 45 or more stations, a company may own up to eight radio stations, no more than five of which may be in the same service, AM or FM. In a radio market with between 30 and 44 radio stations, a company may own up to seven radio stations, no more than four of which may be in the same service. In a radio market hosting between 15 and 29 radio stations, a company may own up to six radio stations, no more than four of which may be in the same service. And finally, in a radio market with 14 or fewer radio stations, a company may own up to five radio stations, no more than 50% of all radio stations in that market. Here are some examples of radio stations' ownership today. iHeartMedia owns 858 radio stations. Cumulus Media owns 429 radio stations. Town Square Media owns 321 radio stations. Odyssey, 235 radio stations. A study found that news stations operated by a small media company produce more local news and more locally produced video than large chain-based broadcasting groups. It was then argued that the FCC claimed that larger media groups produce better quality local content. That gets under my skin a little. In a different study, they also showed that ownership by one of the big four broadcast networks has been linked to a considerable decrease in the amount of televised local public affairs programming. The major reasoning the FCC made for deregulation was that with more capital, broadcasting organizations could produce more and better local content. However, the research studies showed they produce less content. The FCC believes that more deregulation is necessary. Research studies show that they produce less local content, less voices being heard that are from within the communities. While less local voices are heard, more national-based voices do appear. Chain-based companies are using convergence, the same content being produced across multiple mediums to produce their mass-produced content. It is cheaper and more efficient than having to run different local and national news. With convergence and chain-based ownership, you can choose which stories to run and how the stories are heard, being able to be played in local communities and on the national stage. No wonder there is a public distrust in the media. A Gallup poll found that Americans' distrust in the mass media had hit a new high with 60% saying they had little or no trust in the mass media to report the news fully, accurately, and fairly. Distrust had increased since the previous few years, when Americans were already more negative about the media than they had been in the years before 2004. This is Jamie. 
I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. I don't know about you, but I can't imagine what radio will look like in the next five to ten years. There is no local talent on the air anymore, and the station's music format sucks. It's all syndication from outside sources. And you wonder why everyone listens to satellite radio. But again, the music is all pre-programmed. Turn it on. Is there anybody out there?